Morning. So for those of you who don't know me, as you've probably gathered by now, my name's Dan. Um, I'm part of the, uh, the leadership team here, and uh, it's a pleasure to be opening God's Word together this morning. We love reading the Bible because, not just because it's interesting, but because God speaks through it. And that's what we're expecting to happen today. But we're going to open God's Word together. We're in a series on, on the book of Luke, which is one of the Gospels. It's a story of the life of Jesus, of his death of his resurrection. And today we're going to look at a couple of stories. Well, one story in particular, but we are going to read two. And uh, we're going to look at the idea that knowing Jesus is something that leads to action. Okay, so if you, if you think about relationships, okay, in the broad sense of the term, there are some relationships which don't really change much in your life. Okay, so the person on the street who goes up to you to try and convince you to give money to charity, uh, a lot of the time that doesn't really change much in your life. Okay, there are other relationships like that, people that you just say hello to in the street that bump into you, or people that you kind of walk past without looking at. Those, some interactions don't really change the way that you act much, but there are other relationships where everything changes. Okay, so when you fall in love, suddenly everything changes. This new relationship that you have, it, it, doesn't, just, it doesn't just change the way you think, it changes the way you act. You suddenly find that you used to be really, really busy, and now you've got all of this free time to spend with this person that you're now in a relationship with. You find that the way that you act towards this person changes. You find that the things that you do, you start spending your money, not on yourself, but on this, on this person that you're now in a relationship with. And a relationship with Jesus, knowing Jesus, is more like that kind of relationship. It's a relationship that doesn't, not, we can't just tick a box and say, oh, yep, yep, now uh, I know Jesus. It's a relationship that changes the way that we act. And that's absolutely central to what the Bible speaks of when it talks about knowing Jesus. So we're going to look at a couple of stories. We're going to focus mainly on the second with this idea that knowing Jesus leads to action. And so in the first story that we're going to read, which is a, a, a well-known New Testament story about a guy called Zacchaeus, we'll notice that when Zacchaeus meets Jesus, it changes everything about his life. Okay, we're not going to spend ages digging into that story, but you'll get the, you'll get the point when we read it. He meets Jesus everything changes. And in the second story, we find out that it's not just that everything changes when you meet Jesus and you act differently, but that actually the way that we act in response to Jesus has eternal implications. And we're going to look at that. So the first of these stories, which we won't go into too much depth in, shows us that when you meet Jesus, it transforms the way that you live. And the second story tells us that in response to meeting Jesus, the way that we act and what we do with our lives actually has eternal implications. So let's read together. We're going to read Luke 19, verses 1 all the way up to 27. And as I often like to say, this is the most important point of the sermon. It's the point where no mistake will possibly be said, because this is the word of God. So let's read this together. Luke 19, verses 1 to 27. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass, by, pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he, Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, 
Half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So it's a story of a man who was hated by everyone because he basically collaborated with the Roman Empire, and they were the people who were in charge of the Jewish nation at this point, and the Jews hated that. But Zacchaeus was a Jewish man who collaborated with the Romans, and everyone hated him for it. But when he meets Jesus, Jesus comes and finds this man who's hated by everyone, and when he meets Jesus, everything changes. He goes from being someone who rips people off for a living to someone who is generous for a living. He goes from being someone who is outcast and hated to being someone who accepts and welcomes others. Zacchaeus met Jesus and everything changed. And so my question for us today is, has everything changed in light of us meeting Jesus? Does everything in our lives revolve around Jesus or is Jesus one option among many? Are we, are we saying, well, I've got a whole bunch of priorities in my life and Jesus is one of them. Or are we saying, no, at the end of the day, it all boils down to Jesus. When Zacchaeus met Jesus, his priorities completely changed and shifted. And that's the amazing thing, that when you come to know Jesus, when you meet him, your whole life changes. And that's, that's, that's what Jesus does. It's one of those encounters, one of those relationships where everything changes, where our lives are no longer about ourselves, they're about him. And that's exactly what we see happening to Zacchaeus here. It's a, this is a... It's a story that happened, but it's a picture in some sense of what happens to everyone when they meet Jesus. Their response to meeting Jesus might not be to say, I'm going to give up half of my money and give it to the poor, and I'm going to give back fourfold anything I've defrauded, because not all of us will have been tax collectors who were defrauding people. But all of us who have met Jesus in that moment where we met him will have said, my whole life is about you, not me anymore. Something Steph encouraged us a, few, a couple of weeks ago. They actually, to make our whole lives all about Jesus. And that's something that happens. If you've met Jesus, your whole life becomes about him. And so that's my challenge to us as, as believers, as followers of Jesus. Is that still the case? Is that something that we still look to daily say to Jesus? I was even doing that this morning. So Jesus, I was looking at, looking at my bookshelves, kind of... Uh, certain of the resources that I have and saying, Jesus, would all of this and everything that I have be about you? Are we doing that daily? Are we saying, Jesus, all those years ago when I met you, everything changed. Are we seeking to daily remember what Jesus has done and remind ourselves of how much he's transformed our lives and saying, I'm all about you, Jesus. It's what happened to Zacchaeus. And that's what happens to you when you meet Jesus. And you may be here today and you don't know Jesus. You know what I can guarantee is when you do meet Jesus and Jesus is inviting you to meet him today, everything changes. Okay? Christianity is not a convenient option amongst others. Following Jesus is an all or nothing affair. And we see a picture of that with Zacchaeus. But you know what? Zacchaeus did what he did out of joy. It wasn't Zacchaeus going, oh, all right, Jesus, yes, you are worthy. You are the one that I should follow with my whole life, right? Yeah. And I suppose I should probably give some money to the poor. All right. It says, joyfully, he said, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor and there's a whole bunch of people that I've ended up ripping off. I'm going to give them back four times as much as I've ripped them off. Jesus' conclusion was, 
salvation, God's rescue has come to this house. Why? Because Zacchaeus earned it? No. It's because his response demonstrated that he got it. He understood this man is going to change my life. I don't care about my money anymore. I'm not bound by it anymore. It's all about him. So can I encourage you, if you're a believer here today, make your life all about Jesus. If you're not a believer here today, make your life all about Jesus. It's kind of a nice, easy, overall application for everyone. Whatever situation you're in, can I appeal to you? Make your life daily all about Jesus. We're not earning his favour. We're doing that as a joyful response to what he has done for us, which we'll look at a little bit more in a bit. So that's Zacchaeus. Knowing Jesus leads to action. It led to his action. But let's read the second story now, which we'll spend a bit more time on, which is verses 11 to 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas, which is a basically 10 pounds kind of amount of money. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him. And, he sent a delega- and they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he, when the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Goodness. It's a difficult story. It's a story that can be confusing. It's a story that can be hard to digest at places. And it's a story that ends with a real kind of, oh, ouch kind of moment. Let's have a bit of a think about this, because we've just seen a story with Zacchaeus of a man who has met Jesus and that has transformed the way that he lives. And it's interesting that off the back of that, we get a story or a parable, which is basically a a story that is is not a real story. It's not a story that actually happened, but it's a story that illustrates a principle or an idea. And so Jesus tells this parable, he tells this story as a way of talking about the fact that what we do when we follow Jesus, the way that we respond in using our resources, using our time, actually has eternal implications. And so the way he does it, Jesus was a master communicator. Okay, you've ever, ever 
met someone where you just think, you've just got an amazing story for every situation. Jesus was one of those people. He was a master communicator. He knew how to, to really get people to think by telling stories. And uh, so what he did is he took a story that on one level people would have been familiar with. So we might have read this and thought, this sounds weird, like a, a, a guy going off to, a, to go and receive a kingdom and then coming back. Like, what on earth is that? But actually people hearing Jesus' story would have been familiar with this. Because at the time, the Jewish nation was under Roman rule. Okay, so Caesar was, the Roman emperor was the big guy. He was in charge of basically pretty much the whole known world as far as they were concerned at the time. And so if someone wanted to to be the king of a particular country, they would have to go and see Caesar and say, can you make me king of this particular country? And that's actually something that a guy called Herod had ended up doing a little while before this. And what's interesting is when this guy called Herod went to go and see Caesar, there were also a whole bunch of Jewish people that came after him, went to Caesar to say, we do not want this man to reign over us. So Jesus is taking a story that they're very, very familiar with, and he's giving it a bit of a twist. He's using it to help illustrate a point about the way we use our resources in the present and eternity. And so what happens is a nobleman who wants to be king of a particular place goes to see the emperor in order to ask that the emperor would make him king. And whilst he's gone, he gives 10 of his servants a certain amount of money each. In this case, it's a mina, or some of your translation might, might say a pound. It wouldn't be a British pound, obviously. It would be an amount of money from that time. And he says, what I want you to do whilst, I'm, whilst I go on this journey, I want you to invest this money. It's not your money. It's my money, but I'm going to lend it to you. And I want you to invest the money and engage in business. And then when I come back, I want you to give me the money back and I want you to give me all of the profit that you've made. So the servants go off and they do their business. So some of them may have, I don't know, some, one of them might have thought, wow, with this, with this amount of money, I can buy that car there and have enough money to do it up well and sell it for more. And so he buys the car for one pound, which would be amazing. And he does it up, kind of like uses his skills and then sells the car for two pounds. And he thinks, great, now I can invest that two pounds. There's a house over there that looks a bit run down. I'm going to buy it and with, for one pound. I'm going to do it up for another pound and I'm going to sell it for five pounds. That's kind of the idea that's going on. But there's another group of people in this story called the citizens. And uh, they hated the man who was asking the emperor if he could be king. And so what they do is they also send some delegates to the emperor to say, please do not make this man king. We don't want him to reign over us. We hate him. So who are these different people? Who do they represent? So when Jesus tells stories, it's often because different people represent different groups of people in real life. And in this story, the nobleman is Jesus. So when Jesus died and rose from the dead, he ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, he was enthroned as king by God the Father. He went to receive a kingdom. The servants are followers of Jesus. There are people who say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. And during that time, those servants are given responsibility to use what Jesus has given them so that when he returns, he can say to his followers, what have you done with what I gave you? And then you've got the citizens who reject Jesus, which in this story are most likely, it's most likely referring to some of the Jewish leaders at the time who rejected Jesus and hated him. And we're kind of saying, we do not want this man to be king over us. We hate Jesus. Don't like him. He's not the king that we're after. 
And so what happens in this story is the king returns, and then he goes to, and the emperor clearly has made him king, because he returns and turns out that the citizens who were complaining didn't get their way. The king got his way, and he comes back, having been told by Caesar that he can have the kingdom. And he returns, and he asks his servants, what did you do with the money that was entrusted to you? And this is a picture, like I said, of Jesus coming back and saying to every single one of us, what did you do with what I gave you? Did you invest it or did you keep it and do nothing with it? And that's the picture that's going on there. And a really, help, a really important point to make here is this money did not belong to the servants. In the same way, everything that we have is ultimately God's. We can sometimes operate, in fact, like, it, it's very easy to do. I do it all the time. I, 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 off, I will catch myself out doing it. It's very easy to think of what we have as our own. It's very easy, easy for me to think, right, the house that I am renting or the house that hopefully I'll be, be buying and the car that I have and the books that I have and the money in the bank account and my wife and my daughter and my family and all my relationships and so on, that's mine. It's not. It's his. It's Jesus's. We're not owners, we are stewards. Okay? An owner says, everything that I have is mine and I can do whatever I want with it. A steward says, what I have been given is not mine, which means I have a responsibility to use it in a way that is pleasing to my master. Everything we have has been entrusted to us by Jesus in order for us to use it for his glory. Everything. And so the question for us today is, are we going to use what God has entrusted us faithfully or are we going to treat it as if we own it and not use it in order to serve him? And that's what this parable is talking about. And what is encouraging or scary, depending on our response, is that the way we use our resources and everything that we have and have been given in the present has eternal implications. So in this story, so let's think about the three slaves. They were all given the same amount, right? So they all had one mina or one pound each. And the first said to the master when he returned, this is verses 16 and 17, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And, he, and the master said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So the first servant says, I have used your money that you entrusted to me and by engaging in business, whatever he did, like I said, could have sold cars, could have sold houses, whatever, he made more money than he was given initially. And the master says, well done. Because you made 10 extra mina, I am going to give you a promotion. You are now going to be in charge of 10 cities in my kingdom. The second one makes five additional minas. And the master says, okay, great. You, you are going to have authority over five. And then the third one, says in verse 20, 20 to 23, Lord, here is your mina. I kept it laid in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? The final servant kept the money and did nothing with it. And the reason he gives is that he was scared of the master because he thought the master was harsh. Based on how the master has treated the previous two servants, 
Does it sound like this servant knew the master? No. The first two servants have been given a promotion for what they've done. And this servant is either, either he doesn't know the master or he does know the master and is just lying or is being lazy. This is someone who has not ultimately come to know the master. And I, I am not sure that this, pers- this is a servant that is referring to a Christian. I'm not sure that this is a way of depicting certain Christians who go through their whole life and do absolutely nothing for Jesus and get to the end and go, I was a bit scared to serve you. And I'm, I'm not sure that's what, being, what is being represented here. I think the point that's being made is the servant didn't know his master. If you're a believer today, if we're believers, you cannot be a Christian and go through life and never serve Jesus. If that is the case, you're not a follower of Jesus. It's that stark. It's that different. There's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who does absolutely nothing for Jesus over his whole life. There's no such thing as a follower of Jesus who has no transformation whatsoever in their lives. It might look like one extra mina. It might look like 10 extra mina. It might look like a thousand. But Jesus comes to transform lives. And so when we meet Jesus, we know he is going to produce what we call fruit in us. He produces things in our lives that mean that our deepest desire goes from I want to serve myself to I want to serve him. Where suddenly, like Zacchaeus, we're propelled into being generous. Or we suddenly find, you know what, I used to really enjoy that sin. And even though I struggle with temptation, I hate it now. That's the kind of thing that Jesus produces in us. And so I don't think this third servant is a way of saying, you know, there are some Christians that just go through the whole life not producing fruit. I think it's a way of warning those who perhaps would claim by name that they're a follower of Jesus, but haven't really met him. Because when you meet Jesus, everything changes. And so again, I'd encourage you today, wherever you stand, whether you've ever made that, that, that commitment to Jesus, whether you've never made that, daily commit your life to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm all yours. Everything is up for grabs, absolutely everything. Do what you want with me. But what's interesting here is that there were different rewards for different servants. Okay, So even if we just take the first two, one of them ended up being even more faithful than the second one. And the one who was more faithful got a bigger reward than the one who was less faithful. And the point Jesus is making is the more faithful you are with what God has given you in this life, the more rewards you will get in the life to come. On one level, that might, you might be here thinking, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I know that you, you can't earn and deserve God's favor. What on earth are you talking about? This guy's a heretic. Quick, stone him. He, like, this is what Jesus is saying. These, these servants are not earning their right to be servants. They are servants. But one of them is being more faithful than the other. And in the same way, Jesus motivates us by saying, you're all saved. Okay? If you've come to know me and your heart's been transformed, you're saved. But there will be different degrees of reward based on different degrees of faithfulness. And I do not know how that works. But when Christ returns, the reality is there will be some of his followers who somehow end up receiving a greater reward in eternity than others. I don't know what that will look like. And I think the Bible's probably intentionally silent on it so that we don't start speculating. Oh, maybe I'll get three houses rather than two. I don't know. I don't know what it will look like, but there is 
there are degrees of reward for degrees of faithfulness. And let, we need to let that motivate us. Okay, so Steph again said this a couple of weeks ago. He said, sometimes we try to be more spiritual than Jesus. So he said, oh, no, no, no. I can't possibly live my life uh, in order to get a reward. No, 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 that, that's not truly serving Jesus. I should live my whole life and have no regard for reward whatsoever. I should just pour myself out in service for him with no thought of the fact that I might get a reward. Jesus motivates us with reward. He says, if you are faithful in this life, you will get more than if you are less faithful. Let that motivate you. It'd be like, like, like be one of those offer, like if you were offered the chance to have a greater reward at your job, if you ended up being more faithful, it would be stupid to respond by saying, no, I, I, sorry, no, I'm, I, please, I'm, I'm going to be more faithful, but I really don't need the reward. You wouldn't do that. You'd say, oh, great, yes, yes, please. I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to get this reward. And in the same way, that's, the, that's what Jesus says to us. He says, if you've come to know me, be as faithful as you can and let the fact that you will get a great reward motivate you. I, I want to be the servant that gets 10 minas in this parable. That's what I want. I, I want to be able to stand there on the final day and Jesus say, well done. You have been faithful in the little. You can have great things. Doesn't mean that those who are less faithful are not saved. It just means that there are degrees of rewards and we need to let that motivate us and not see it as a kind of, oh, I can't possibly be motivated by, by rewards. And so what does that look like in practice? Okay? What does that actually look like in day to day? Because in a sense, it's easy to see it from the story. It's easy to understand what Jesus is talking about. But what does that really look like for us in the day to day? Well, I think the first thing is it involves a change of mindset. It involves saying, okay, everything in my life is not mine, which means I need to look at life through the lens of being a steward rather than the lens of being an owner. And to think everything that I have is entrusted to me by Jesus. How can I use it to be a steward rather than an owner? So it involves a shift of mindset, and that very often requires daily reminding yourself. And to be honest, the more you remind yourself that everything you have isn't yours, the more grateful you end up being. You think, well, I don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve salvation for a start at all. I do not deserve to have clothes on. I do not deserve to have food. I don't deserve to have a house over my head. Thank you, Jesus, for entrusting this to me. Help me to use it now to serve you. So it involves a change of mindset. But I think it also think it involves thinking through what has Jesus given you? So in this story, all of the different servants are given the same amount. And I think what that represents is everyone is given the same responsibility to use what they have for Jesus. But some of us may have more than others. Okay? Some of us naturally, because, because of the jobs we have, or sometimes literally just through circumstances of life, are financially better off than others. Some of us may find that we have much more time and energy than other people do. But we all still have the same responsibility to use what we have for his service. And so what you might find helpful, actually, is to... Again, depending on what circumstance of life you're in, if you're married or if you've got, and you've got a family, why not sit down at some point as a family and think, what is it that Jesus has given us? What are the kind of things that we have? What kind of time do we have? What kind of money do we have? What kind of resources do we have? What kind of natural talents has God given us? What kind of spiritual gifts has God given us? If you're single and you might want to gather with a group of friends or we might just want to do that anyway as, as, a, as life groups, say, 
What is it that Jesus has given me, has entrusted to me? What is it that Jesus has entrusted to us? And how can we make sure that we're aware of that so that we can use it? So all of us, to a certain extent, will have time. We'll have money, to a certain extent, more or less. We have all also been given the gospel. Okay, So the message of Jesus, that is also something that has been given to us. And we'll all have different abilities and different gifts. So personally, what, what I am doing now is being faithful in the little. It's saying, God has given me a gift of teaching, and I'm going to exercise that in order to help equip people to think through how they serve God. What gifts has God given you? It may be that you think, well, actually, I can very often clearly hear from God for other people. God may have given you a gift of prophecy. Use it. Don't sit on it. It sometimes feels a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? If you're like, oh, no, we're British. I can't possibly say I have a gift of prophecy. It's a gift. <laughs> when you get a gift at Christmas, you don't say, oh, no, I can't possibly show my gift to other people. That might be arrogant. You're like, no, you, you didn't deserve it. It's a gift. And uh, to be honest, I, I, I have struggled with this, and I'm having to learn about it. So when it comes to, to one of the, like I said, one of the spiritual gifts that God has given me is, is the gift of teaching, being able to explain the Bible and, uh, and apply it to, to other people, I'm having to learn not to try and play that down. But actually say, no, this is a gift that God has given me. And actually, if I were to hide that away and say, I'm not going to use it because it might feel arrogant if I were to claim that God's given me a teaching gift, I'd actually be being unfaithful with the little that God has given me. What is it for you? It might be prophecy. It might be that you've got the gift of tongues. Use it, gift of languages. It may be that God has given you a supernatural ability to just see people healed when you pray for them. Use it. We need to use the gifts that God has given us. We also, I think, another thing that can be helpful in this respect is to cultivate generosity. Okay? To make a practice of giving things away, whether that's money, or whether that's time, or whether that's effort and energy, but to say, actually, I am going to cultivate a life of generosity. And we have the chance to do that, particularly today in, in the form of the gift day. You know what? Giving your money to what God is doing in Peterborough is a good investment. Yeah? What I'm not calling for is just willy-nilly throwing away your money, saying, well, I just need to get rid of it. That's not stewardship, that's folly. Stewardship is saying, how can I use the money that God has given me to be generous in things that are going to advance the kingdom of God, in things that are going to bless other people? So we're not just saying, right, well, oh, I've got too much money, let me just, I don't know, bury it in the garden or burn it or throw it away. That's, that's folly, that's not stewardship. What we're saying is invest it in good things. Invest it in things that will last forever rather than things that will rot away and won't last. And I think another thing is ask God to reveal opportunities to serve. So be asking God daily, Lord, are there any areas that I can, I can serve people? Now, that might be joining a serving team on a Sunday. Okay? So that, that may be a very practical way that you can increase the faithfulness that you have with what God has given you. But it's broader than that. We don't want to all just make it about, oh, making Sundays work. It's about saying, is, is there anything I can do this week to serve other people? Actually, you know what? There was that person I was chatting to last Sunday, and they just seemed a bit down. Maybe I can offer to cook them a meal and bring it over. Or actually, there's my non-Christian friend over there, and you know what? They're, they're sick at the moment. You know what? Maybe I can be bold and pray for them. It's looking for opportunities to serve people and to say, Jesus, everything I have is yours. Please help me to use it. 
and many, many other things. Obviously, we can't talk about every single way that you could possibly serve God. But the idea is thinking, what is it that God has entrusted to me? How can I use it? And to do it, to be honest, out of gratitude to Jesus, but also motivated by the fact that the more we pour ourselves into serving Christ in the present, the more we will experience delight and joy in the future. But it would be, I think, wrong to leave today on that note, where we all go away and say, great, right, that was a really motivational speech. Let's all go and serve God more. Yes, I'm going you know, to do a spreadsheet of all of the different things I can serve God with. I'm going to set myself goals and to-dos. And by next month, I need to have prayed for this many people to be healed. And I'm going to join seven serving teams. I'm going to kill myself by serving Jesus because I, I don't even sleep anymore. That's, that's not what we want to leave with. What we want to leave with is, yes, motivation to sacrificially give ourselves, but to remember that me, although meeting Jesus leads to action, his action came before our action. We do not do this to earn his favor. We do this because he has earned that favor for us. Jesus' actions came before our actions. His action of dying and rising from the dead came way before anything that we could possibly do to please him. And in fact, you know what? The only reason we could even do anything to please him is because he saved us in the first place. We'd be incapable of pleasing him if he hadn't saved us. Just can't do it. We'd be doing it out of wrong motives. We'd be doing it out of a sense of, oh, well, I'm just going to try and gain God's favor. But Jesus saved us, and now he asks us to be faithful to him. That's the way it works. And we need to remember that. We need to go out of here today with the biggest thing in our ears being, Jesus has done it. Therefore, we now have a task to do. And to never see it the other way around. Otherwise, we end up tiring ourselves out, out of completely wrong motives and forgetting the glory of the fact that he has acted before we ever could act. And so that's where I want to kind of leave us today is with that appeal, let the motivation that Jesus gives us motivate us, the motivation of reward. But first and foremost, let's remember what he has done. Let's remember the master more than we remember the task. That's what a good servant does. He remembers the master and pleasing the master more than just remembering the task. And so maybe what we could do is we could, if we could stand, if we're able, I'd like us to pray together. Maybe actually, I, would the band be happy to, I don't realize I didn't actually warn you about this at all, but would the band be happy to play in Christ alone? I think for us to finish by remembering He's the reason that we can even act in the first place. He's the reason we can invest our stuff. He's, he's the reason we even have this stuff. He acted first. And so I'm going to pray for us. And uh, if you're here today and you're, you're listening to this and you think, I want to know more about Jesus, I want to give my life to him, there's a very simple, practical way that you can find out more or do that. Is, uh, there are, I think there are response cards in front of you. And if you're here today and you're thinking, I want to find out more about Jesus... Can someone please get in touch with me to tell me more? What must I do to follow him? Then if you just put your details down on there, leave the card face down on the table, and afterwards the stewards will gather it, and someone will be in touch with you to help you on this journey of coming to know Jesus. And for those of us who do follow Jesus already, let's sing this song as simultaneously a reminder of what Jesus has done and, an, and a declaration that we say, everything we have is in Christ and we're going to use everything we have to serve Christ because he served us first. So, Father, we thank you 
for your word. We thank you for the good news of Jesus. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to be, to be servants who get 10 meaners. Lord, to be the servants who are really, really faithful in the little, motivated by that reward, whatever that looks like, motivated by the eternal reward that you will give us. But Lord, we most importantly want to remember Jesus and we want to remember his work for us so that we could then work for him. He has done what we could not possibly do. We cannot do what Jesus did. And so we thank you that Jesus has done the most difficult work and is now calling us and enabling us to serve him and that that brings the deepest, greatest joy. And we pray as we sing this song, you would help us to recommit our lives to you and to remember how great Jesus is and to love him with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.